Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadaf. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. Let's all turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, Lord, we turn to hear a word from you. I have prepared what I need to have taught. I have studied what I need to have taught. I am willing and I want to bring you Silently now I wait for you. Ready, my Lord, thy will to see. Open mine eyes. So 1 Corinthians 10.13 is our theme verse. And the text says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to. Let's recap from last week, part one. We learned that temptation has three components. An objective, God has an objective, and the deceiver has an objective. Every temptation has an object, which comes in three flavors, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Every temptation has an opportunity, and in that opportunity, What's much more important is timing as opposed to the brute strength of the temptation. We learn that the best temptations hide in plain sight. And if the identity of the tempter is hidden, your defenses go down. And that hidden tempter will also try to convince you that the temptation to be bad is actually your idea. You also can't wait until game day to prepare for temptation. Because if you do, you'll find yourself in a whole mess. And temptation is always a supernatural battle. Therefore, you can't bring natural weapons to a supernatural battle. So now that we know what's going to happen leading up to temptation, we will now focus on how to escape in temptation. This is why I chose 1 Corinthians 10, 13 as our theme verse. Because it was written by the Apostle Paul, who frequently throughout the New Testament speaks of temptation. He's actually a guy that wrote, I do things I don't want to do and I don't understand why. So he was repeatedly tempted was a believer. And this verse is in the book of Corinthians. So I want you to think of the most dysfunctional church you can think of in your mind. The Corinthian church was worse. Everything you could possibly conceive of, they were doing wrong, and they did it in the name of God. And he's writing this letter to that church trying to correct their moral and doctrinal 
What does the verse say? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. The first part of the verse that deals with the temptation is in the natural. It speaks about commonality amongst human beings. But the remaining three parts in dealing with the solution to temptation is in the supernatural. The solution is God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure. And since we now know the escape route is supernatural, we can't escape from temptation through natural means. I say this because there are many secular outlets today that will show you how to quote-unquote escape your temptations. But all of those prescriptions are very, very natural. But if you're not going to the one who has dominion over every aspect of temptation, you may get an answer, but not the answer. So you may escape depression and flee to alcohol. You may escape drugs and flee to food. I'm a physician, right? So if you came into my office and asked me a legal question, I'll give you a answer, but I'm not going to give you the answer to get you out of legal trouble. If the one who allows temptation to happen is not involved in your escape route, it is doomed for failure. And that's what the Corinthian verse tells us. So now you're asking yourself, okay, what are the escape routes? Well, I'm glad you asked. Escape route number one, the word of God. Escape route number one, the word of God. The simplest lesson to be derived from this point is you always, always, Keep your eyes on God. So in Luke 4, we have the temptation of Jesus by the devil in the wilderness. Now here's the setup. Jesus is baptized in which he publicly declares his covenant with his Father God, the Holy Spirit descends, and he tells everyone, I am here to serve. The very next thing that happens is that he is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Immediately after that, what happens? He begins his public ministry. He begins spreading the good news about the freedom and liberation he is about to bring. Why am I saying this? People often think that temptation is a sign of weakness. They think, my God, my God, I'm being so burdened. I'm being overwhelmed. But temptation is often a sign of power because there is a spiritual awareness of what you have the potential to do. Jesus, when he was being tempted, was about to change the entire world forever. And the deceiver knew that. So he tried to put a hit out on Christ. He tried to stop him 
before he could cause any damage. But guess what? This is only one of many hits. When was the first hit out on Jesus? When he was a baby. Just like Moses, the first hit on him was when he was a defenseless child. Because the enemy will resort to nothing to stop you. Because the enemy knows what a threat you can be. God knows what a threat you can be. But as I mentioned before last week, sometimes you don't know. And these hurdles are meant to trip you up so you give in before your mission is accomplished. So temptation can be a sign of power. Let's all turn to Luke 4. And the text says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms in the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory. It has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportunity. Now last week I went through the specifics of temptation and the minutia of what is involved in temptation. From these passages, I'll do only with a generality. So here's the first take-home point from this encounter. Even God stands under the word of God. Jesus, being God incarnate, could have used any conceivable weapon or defensive mechanism he could think of going up against it. But the one thing he chose to do was to remain under the word of God, the Bible. And guess what? The same tools, the same weapon that he used, we have access to. It's in front of everyone in this room right now. And when you read and speak the word of God, you are invoking the power of the one, Jesus, who defeated the temptation. Which means if you expect to defeat temptation, you have to know what you're going to defeat temptation with. Because if you don't establish a relationship with the word and read your Bible every day, in the time of temptation, 
you're going to call on and invoke the name of someone you don't know. And when you knock on Jesus' door, he's going to say, who are you? I haven't seen you in a while. And he may be reluctant to come to your rescue because the relationship is not there. And you don't have a proper understanding of who this individual is. Now watch this. The word incarnated as a human being who is Jesus. So the word of God or the Bible is Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. So if the word or the Bible equals Jesus and Jesus equals the light, then the word equals the light. Everyone follow me? Now look what the light does. How many people here when they are about to sin, call your pastor and say, it's about to go down. Never. Do you call your friends? Do you tell your wife? It's about to get real. Mm. Never happens. Why? Because temptation and sin thrives in darkness. And in the darkness, you could look in a mirror and you're unable to differentiate between yourself and the sin. In darkness, you can't see the effects your sin are having on yourself and other people. But when you establish a relationship with the word, which is light, what happens? Everything is now illuminated. It shows you what you're doing is in fact wrong, and now the lights come on. And what happens? You look at yourself in the mirror and you say, what am I doing? Because there's you who's made in the image of God and this tarnished, tainted sin that's just burdening you down. And you can now see the sin that's separating you from God and tarnishing all of your relationships. Now here's the thing. It's in your best interest for you to turn the lights on. That is the path of least resistance. What you don't want is for someone else to turn that light on for you. And the worst possible scenario is for the day of judgment for God to turn that light on. Because then it's too late. And he will show you, look at it right here and there'll be no discussion. So when that light comes on, what does it do? It reveals not only the sin, but it reveals the effects that sin is having on you and your relationship. And with that light on, you can now see the brighter lights of God in your life. And seeing the negative effects of that sin, you want to repent and turn away from it. Because there's no reason to go back into darkness with the brighter light that is God. So what do you do? You repent and you return to God. You also want to repair relationships. Because if you're immersing yourself in the light of the, of the word, you say, I am hurting someone else. 
And before you can reconcile with God, you go to the person you've offended. It may be your wife. It may be your friend, your pastor, a sibling, whomever. And you say, hey, I was wrong. I am sorry. So the light makes you take responsibility. You say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. And then in that process, you can now go back to God and say, in your heart of hearts, you are truly repentant. You say, God, I am sorry. And guess what God is going to say? He's going to say, you are forgiven. He's going to release you from the debt. Now, all the while, during this entire process, the accuser will stand over you and say, you're worthless, you're a fornicator, you're a murderer, you're a nobody. But in that courtroom, God is the judge. And then he looks at his son who died on the cross, and before he bangs his, gang, his gavel, he'll turn to Jesus and say, what is your verdict? And Jesus then says, not guilty, you are released. People fail to realize that God is both the Alpha and the Omega. It doesn't matter what you have done, he is always Alpha. There's always a new beginning. So it doesn't matter what you've done, what you're going to get yourself into, he is Alpha and Omega. He has control not only of your destiny, but every new beginning you're about to embark on. The verdict is always going to be not guilty. Why? Because the Bible tells us so, and even God stands under the word of God. Now, recall in my last message that the best temptations hide in plain sight. So what the narrative in Luke tells us are two important things. Real temptations, the real good ones, devil himself makes up, always make an offer to rise, and much good can be said about the temptation. I'll give you an example. If Jesus would have said yes to any of the devil's temptations, worship me, stone to bread, throw yourself down from me. He would have dominion, control, and power over many earthly, king, earthly kingdoms. He would be in a position of authority. He'd be in a position of power. He'd be a, a, a well-celebrated president. They would say, this man threw himself down from a cliff, and miraculously, he was healed. He has the power to turn inanimate things like rocks into bread. Surely... He must be a man of God. Because look at all the signs and wonders he is doing. Clearly, we should worship him. And what do all these perverse signs and wonders cover up? Who he would truly be worshiping. And they never, exactly, the devil. And all of these things do not reflect one key thing, heart condition. Now, let's look at something else. Every temptation the devil gave Jesus, there was an invitation to escape the temptation. In other words, 
bow down and worship me and I'll stop. Turn the stone to bread and your hunger will go away. What does our theme verse say? It says, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Endure it. Which means not escape it, not flee from it, but endure it. If you think about it, the easiest way to escape any temptation is to go through with it and sin. It immediately goes away, and it comes right back five minutes later, five days later, next week. In which case, the temptation wins. It gets the best of you. You could flee from the temptation, in which case it's a draw. You don't sin. You get away from it. But now you haven't learned to deal with the temptation because your response is fleeing from it. But if you endure the temptation, then the temptation does not, it cannot be able to overpower you. It can't, enfor- it can't force you to sin because you have now remained patient and remained under it. So everyone recalls my story about Matt last week, my trainer, right? So when I first met Matt, I said, Matt, I want to get stronger. I don't really care about how I look on the beach, but I want to be able to bench and squat and deadlift crazy weight. Like, okay. Yeah, let's throw on 10 plates in the bench press. Let's go crazy. He's like, no, no, no. We're going to start small and then work our way up. So the first week, I had two plates in the bench. Second week, it was one and a half. The third week, it was three plates. And every time I saw Matt, it was always one more rep, one more set, slightly more weight. He was always throwing more and more weight at me, encouraging me to push through the pain. Because if I didn't shear my muscle fibers, I wouldn't be able to lift the heavier weight. Now, before I knew it, Matt had me doing ridiculous weight because he was always challenging me to endure the stress and the pain knowing what the result would be. Now look at what God does. God will will permissively allow certain things to happen to you. And if you're able to endure it, you are now so strong, you can now resist those temptations. So when the deceiver throws one plate at you, bench it, no problem, this is a joke. When he throws two plates at you, you knock that out too. When he throws 10 plates at you, guess what? Matt already trained you to lift that. This is no longer an issue because you have endured it. If you're at the door of the gym and you stop to get ice cream and don't work out, temptation wins. If you flee, from Matt and run away, it's a draw. No one wins. But if you work out with Matt and you endure, a couple of weeks later, you're going to walk in the gym, shirt off, sweating, muscles, you're a force to be reckoned with. Because that's how you conquer the temptation. You endure it. 
Now you're asking yourself, okay, that's cute. Nice little story. What if I still want to sin? What if I have this burning desire inside of me to do something bad? I mean, after all, no one's getting hurt. I'm not going to jail. I pay my taxes. I come to church. What's the big deal? The big deal is death. That's the ultimate big deal. But here's my second point. You have to fight desire with desire. One more time. Fight desire with desire. Let's all turn to Galatians chapter 5. Text says this. The ESV. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So I found this verse very interesting because the Holy Spirit is God. And if the spirit desires, then desiring cannot be evil. The flesh can desire, but if the Holy Spirit is desiring, there must not be something bad with desire in absolute sense. And the root of the word for desire actually means to set the heart upon to long for. So it's just like faith. Faith by itself, without an object of faith, is meaningless. Because you could have faith in the tooth fairy. What makes faith meaningful is what you put your faith in. So desire is actually morally neutral. What makes desire good or bad is what the target of that desire is. Which means desire by itself isn't a bad thing. It's what you're desiring in. Therefore, the opposite of a bad desire is a good desire, not no desire. For example, Paul tells us to renew our minds by setting our our thoughts on the things of Christ. He doesn't say stop thinking. He says to reset the focus of where your thoughts are going. So if you have a certain desire in your bones, the solution isn't going to be for that desire to go away. The solution's going to be what is the focus of that desire. Which means then that the opposite of a desire of the flesh where you want to consume something isn't no desire. It's actually joy saying, I'm good where I am. The opposite of a desire of the eyes, where you want something greater, is actually contentment. And the opposite of the pride of life is submission. You no longer want to benefit yourself, 
but you want to benefit God, therefore you submit yourself. Let me give you an example. The author of our theme verse, the Apostle Paul, started life out as a Pharisee, which mean his, his, means his desire was for other people to follow the law and the word of God. But that desire was set on himself. He says, I'm better, I'm smarter, and as a result, he was very, very judgmental and demeaning of other people. But then what happened? Paul met Jesus. And after he met Jesus, what did he do? He wrote most of the entire New Testament, but his desire didn't change. He still wanted people to follow God's word, but now his desire was set on Christ. He wrote letters upon letters telling people, this is what your life should look like. His desire didn't change. It was now the focus or the intent of that desire. Now we're up to our last point. Escape route number three. Endurance, where it all ends. Again, back to our theme verse. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure. The root of the word endure is powerful, and it means Patience, enduring, waiting, steadfastness, perseverance. Characteristic of a person who is not swerved from their deliberate purpose and loyalty to faith. James 1, 2-4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Romans 5, 3 to 4 in the ESV. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. 1 Peter 2, 20 to 21. When you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, and this finds favor with God. So to escape from temptation, we have three options. We can fight it, we can flee from it, or we can endure it. And what we now realize is that when we patiently stand firm and endure the temptation, and when you feel overwhelmed and consumed by desires, the endurance makes you slow down. And reality begins to materialize much more clearly. And you now begin to see the escape door, which is Jesus, the one who conquered temptation. And the path that leads to that escape door is endurance. And when you open the door, and Jesus opens it, and you say, yes, Lord, here I am. How can I endure? He will tell you, what example have I showed you?
you will say, Lord, on the cross throughout your entire life, you had many temptations. You could have given up. You could have ran away. But now I realize you instead chose to endure it. You remained patient and always waited on God because even God stands under the word of God. And with that realization, you now realize that after you are led up to the escape door, you then turn around being strengthened by the model of Christ and you go right back to the center of your temptation. What do you do? You stand firm and you endure. You are patient. Psalm 27 is written by a man, David, who encountered many temptations and trials in his life. And what does he say? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? The war rise against me. In spite of this, I shall be confident. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. So here's the last question. How are we to wait? How can you learn to endure? And how can you become more patient? And the answer is you begin preparing for war because the defeat of temptation is going to be costly, it's going to be bloody, and it's going to be tough. But God has already given us the defensive armor for that battle. Ephesians 6, 10 to 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm, there's our endurance, against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and have done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So how do you endure? The armor of God. What keeps everything together is the belt of truth, which tells us we never give up an eternal promise for a temporary satisfaction. What protects our hearts is the breastplate of righteousness, which tells us God already justified us and made us worthy, so there's no room for guilt or feelings of inadequacy. What shods our feet is peace, which means we no longer wish to move from our predicament, but we are still where we are. What shields us is our faith, the enemy's arrows seek to pierce us. We know already that Christ was pierced for our transgressions, and it's that realization which shields us from temptation. 
What protects our minds is the helmet of salvation, knowing that before the foundation of the world, God already elected and called us, which means we're in a fixed, in a fixed fight and we're meant to overcome. And when it is time to raise our swords, that is the word of God. What gives us strength is the word that cuts through every malicious and perverse lie that ever existed. For in the beginning was the word, and in the end the word shall still be. And that word walked among us, and his name was Jesus, who is the one that is the ultimate escape from all temptation. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Dr. Sadafo. For more valuable information and resources, please visit chesadafal.com.